Getting sober requires a lot more than mind over matter, a lot more than willpower. It's about leveraging the support around you. People in recovery typically need a mix of medical help, emotional support, and changes in lifestyle to manage their addiction, not just mental determination. As both a therapist and someone embracing the recovery lifestyle, there's one tool I always recommend to people needing extra accountability, Soberlink. Soberlink is a high-tech breath analyzer system designed to help you get and stay sober. And here's why I love it. You'll test the same day every day, eliminating testing anxiety. Friends and family receive instant test results, helping you rebuild trust and preventing relapse. Accountability is a part of that, and it's something to really be embraced. Devices have built-in facial recognition, so your support circle knows you're testing, and tamper-resistant sensors flag any attempts at trying to beat the system, so your sobriety is never questioned. So let 2024 be your best year yet. Visit Soberlink.com forward slash T-A-M to sign up and receive $50 off your device. That's Soberlink.com forward slash T-A-M. And let accountability be your guide. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Addicted Mind podcast. My name is Dwayne Osterlin, and I'm your host, and we are on to episode 125. So today, our guest is Arlena Allen. She is the host of the One Day at a Time podcast and creator of the Sober Life School. She's been sober since 1994. After living quite the wild life of drugs, alcohol, and sex, she talks about her tagline at the time was, If it was in a bottle, a bag, or blue jeans, I was doing it. But this left her feeling lost, full of self-loathing, demoralized, and hopeless. She talks about how she finally reached out to some sober friends who offered her a little bit of hope and safety uh, to be able to look inward, introduced her to AA, where she began the steps to change. And in that change, she shares her understanding of how our own natural tendency for negativity and confirmation bias creates a painful feedback loop of continued self-loathing and continued pain and how reaching out to others can help change that process so we can unpack our baggage and see things more clearly with compassion and begin to make the changes we want. So coming up, Arlena Allen's story. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Addicted Mind podcast. My guest today is Arlena Allen. Arlena, introduce yourself. Hi, Dwayne. Thanks so much for having me. Uh, Yes, my name is Arlena Allen. I am the host of the One Day at a Time podcast. You're going to be a guest on my cast pretty soon. So I'm super excited about that as well. Yeah, I'm looking forward to that. Yeah. I'm the founder of Sober Life School and I do some coaching. I do classes mostly focused on women's self-esteem. I've been sober for a minute. It's I got sober April 23rd of 94. I spend my life awesome. now trying to help other people get sober as well in a variety of ways. But I've been married for since 97. I'm not great at math. So it's, it's, we're off to a good start. <laughs> <It's> been, <laughs> That's okay. That's okay. Met my husband. 
<laughs> right. Yeah. Right. No, I meant with my marriage, you know, we're like we've been together for a long time. I That's have two awesome. boys. One is 20 and the other is 17. Um, and I live in Idaho. Wow. Awesome. So I'm excited to just hear your story and how this all unfolded for you and how you got to the other side. Yeah. So I'll just share a little bit about my family of origin because I feel like that kind of sets the stage for everything else. Um, And I'll just tell you that my parents are very nice people that they did not have any sort of drinking or drug use or they were super straight. You know, I grew up uh, what I refer to as a super church. Oh my gosh, we relate to each other already. I grew up... Right. right. And my my circumstances is slightly unique, not like terminally unique, but um, daddy was from Kentucky and uh, grew up very religious. My mother is from Mexico City. So there was a lot of ay Dios mio, gracias a Dios and praise Jesus right. in okay. my house. Two combos. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, yeah, so a lot of God. But uh, that did not save me from um, drug addiction and alcoholism. I had a couple events early in my life that really shaped my identity. It shaped what I thought I deserved and my value and what I was capable of in this world. I was sexually abused by a neighbor from a very young age, which really did a number on my head and my self-esteem. Because, you know, I'm I'm being raised in the church and they're talking about being good and being Christ-like and following the, you know and all this and everybody at church has the happy face and nobody's everyone's striving for perfection. So nobody's talking about where they're falling. Like it's perfectly acceptable to ask for prayers if somebody is sick, but what happens when you do a repeated bad behavior that you can't seem to control? Right. Or what if you feel like you're, I was sort of taught that I was fundamentally flawed, that I was born a sinner and, and all this stuff. So all I ever wanted when I was little was to be good Uh, And then my parents divorced when I was about seven. And I couldn't articulate this idea and conclusion that I came to as a little girl. But I thought if I could have just been good enough that none of this would have ever happened. Like I took it on as it was my fault. It's kind of like that. All these things. That shame core. Like somehow I must be fundamentally flawed. Fundamentally flawed. I mean, that's what I was learning at church, right? Mm-hmm. Was that I was born with original sin. And what's interesting is, you know, fast forward many years later into recovery, I learned that sin is an archery term. It means that you miss the mark. And I was always, what I could never reconcile about religion is that I was taught that God was so loving in a way that my puny human brain couldn't possibly fathom. Yet there was a time when my mother was like, yeah, no, she re- rejected religion. And she was like, yeah, I'm not buying it. And I thought, well, then that means that what I'm being taught is that she's going to go to hell. And I'm thinking God must love my mother at least as much as I do. Right. Right, And I would never let that happen. So none of this made sense to me. I was very confused. And plus I wanted to be, you know, I really wanted to be good. And I kept asking God to fix me and to heal me and to change me. And I remained human. And, but what I thought was that I was bad. And at some point I gave up, I decided that if I couldn't be good, that I would be good at being bad. Right. Right. Yeah. (laughs) I gave up. And and I I just, just to kind of go back, because I think this is so 
important to to say is that those early experiences like that form that belief system that just kind of feeds itself that that shame spiral just keeps growing so what i learned later is a couple of ideas about your brain's default mode network right it's a collection of thoughts and ideas neurons that are that are really memories you know the and ideas that fire together wire together right we develop what's called a default mode network your brain is a very efficient organ and you know in childhood we develop these beliefs about who we are it's like the subconscious mind it's how we operate from it's like a computer's operating system we we then operate from that presupposition about who we think we are and what we deserve and what we're capable of and i didn't of course i didn't learn this too much till much later but your brain is very efficient so we're bumping up against a couple of things we're bumping up against confirmation bias right. meaning i made a decision about who i was and what i was worth right and then my subconscious mind then looks for information to support my belief and discredits or ignores all other information to the contrary right like we see this in politics we see very rational people make crazy decisions because they are falling to uh the confirmation bias right like people have gotten and, and very that's extreme a human and, condition i think it's so important to say that's, that's a, a human, human condition. condition we we all have that Yes, we all have it because it's your brain's way of being efficient. And the default mode network, I like to think of it as a thermostat. Like you don't get too high and you don't get too low. We live within this comfort zone, right? And so here's another thing that we need to consider is as children, we are not in, we don't have the power to affect our environment that is done by the adults. And so we, I personally learned to detach and disassociate from my feelings so that I could survive. But the survival skills that I learned in childhood did not translate to healthy adulthood because in, in healthy adulthood, I need to be in tune with my feelings. I need to be aware of what I like, what I don't feel, what I don't like. You know, I, I need to be able to notice pressure, meaning like I can sense when something's not right and have the confidence and the self-esteem to be able to voice something like, this doesn't feel right to me. I'm not sure what's going on, but uh, this is not working for me. This is a hardship. I've learned in stating in developing boundaries much later that I, you state a hardship and then ask for what you need. And I need to be in touch with my feelings in order to be able to communicate in a healthy way. But I did not learn that in childhood. Yeah, I was just about to to say that. Like, it sounds like these events that you had early in your childhood kind of skewed that whole thing. And then here you are going down the road feeling like so bad that I'm just going to be bad. Yeah. I mean, I absolutely hated who I was and I hated who I was to the point where, so my parents divorced. I have an older sister. She and I were left home alone one night when my mom went out on a date. Um, I was about, I had to be younger than 10, which is hard for me to wrap my brain around. I have two boys and I remember looking at them when they were between eight and 10 thinking, I can't imagine my little girl self hating herself so much that she felt the need to drink. But that's what happened. I had my first drink probably around nine. I decided to go for this dusty old bottle in the cabinet. I don't even know where I got this idea from. But I, my, I have an older sister who was the compliant child, so she did not drink. So it was party one. Right, right. <laughs> and I went for this. 
Hey. Um, I always liked having fun, which was not an attribute in my mother's eyes, but that's another story. But I went for this uh, bottle in the cabinet and I remember, I don't, I must've mixed it with juice or something. I don't remember the particulars, but I do remember that it burned my lips. It burned all the way down. But then when it hit bottom, that's warmth spread through my whole body mm-hmm. and all the self-hatred, all the self-consciousness, uh, all that was lifted, right? Right. right yeah. And what was left were these great, I felt so good. And the contrast between those two feelings, the juxtaposition of the good and the, like, I didn't know how bad I felt until I felt good. Yeah. I, I think that's such a common, common thing. It's like, I was about to ask you that as you're in this pain, did you, I mean, you, it's, it's weird on one level, you know, you're in pain and on one level, you don't know you're in pain. I don't know if that makes sense. Like you just want to get out. You want to change it. Yeah. I, yeah, I was totally, I didn't, I know this now, but I was disassociating from my feelings because I would have moments of such like moments of such excruciating pain that I would then short out to some point. I would, I would act out with anger or who knows what, I don't even remember. I'm sure my mother does. She remembers everything, but, um, you know, Hmm. yes. So I, I just felt I don't know why I did it, but I felt compelled to use. And that's, that's the baffling thing about for me, for my alcoholism and drug addiction is I didn't know why I was doing all these things. Like I had that cognitive dissonance. Like I knew it was wrong, but I did it anyway. But it It felt good. I mean, like you said, that warm feeling came over you and it took that pain away and it's like, oh my God, I want more of that. Yeah. And so obviously at 10 years old, I didn't become a daily drinker, but every chance I got, you know, and then I started smoking weed in junior high. Then I discovered boys. Actually, I discovered boys very early on. I thought that was sort of my tagline in recovery. I go to 12 step meetings and my tagline for the last 20 years has been because I would use anything to change the way I felt. But if it was in a bottle, a bag or blue jeans, I was doing it. Right. <laughs> anything, sure. I'm anything. taking it. Yeah. No, I'm saying. You picking up what I'm putting down. Yeah. I mean, yeah. there was like periods, <laughs> periods of time where I would wake up and be like, oh my God, that's not my ceiling. You know, I was behaving in ways that were not uh, in line with the morals and values that my mother had tried to instill in me, my mother and my father, yeah. to be perfectly honest. But, um, yeah, but you know, care. alcohol, sex, it, it, it feels better. It takes that pain away. Yeah, they were really, what I was really doing was I was developing unhealthy coping mechanisms. I didn't know that that's what it was at the time, but that's what was happening. Yeah. And like you said earlier, the brain is efficient. Yeah. Yeah. And my mother just didn't know what to do with me. She didn't have any healthy coping skills, like the way she was raised. I mean, I, it's, my mother's a very positive person and it amazes me. She's like a unicorn. I don't know how she got to be so positive and don't get me wrong. Her positivity didn't happen until later. Like when I was growing up, she had two primary feelings. She was either really happy or really pissed off. And I felt like she saved the happy face for the outside world. And I had two primary feelings feelings growing up as well. And it was guilty and wrong. Guilty and wrong. Right. I was just, uh, I was just always guilty and wrong. I was going to ask you too, with that, going back to being brought up in, in the church where everybody's putting a smile on their face and striving for perfection and you, you can't be sad. I mean, if you, if you have God in your life, there's no room for sadness. Sometimes that can be the message. 
And, um, you know, here you got to smile along and, and, and get along. Yeah. It's so interesting because I have found, and I'm sure you have too, in many cultures and religions, there is this um, idea of absolution of guilt and shame. And that was really the message of Jesus. He was like the Prince of Peace, right? He was the, you are forgiven. Like God sent his only begotten son to forgive you of your sins. So there is this human nature, this human need to be forgiven. Absolutely. We, yeah. we do. We needed, we need, I needed a way to process my guilt and shame to resolution, but I didn't know how to do it. And it wasn't, I tried, I tried, you know, asking for forgiveness. And so that's, that was kind of one way that they sort of navigated the whole, you know, if you feel guilty, if you're tired, if you're weary, you know, right. ask God to help for help and ask for forgiveness and continue that process. And, and I do feel like, um, forgiveness and confession, like there is a huge need for that, right? There's, there's this validation that is required of our feelings. Like, yes, your feelings are valid. And then here's a way to process those feelings. And then let's move towards what is it that you do want? Right. Yeah. Right. We spend all, we have this negativity bias out of survival, you know, this is more brain development stuff, but it's like, we do have a negativity bias where we're looking for the problem so that we can solve it so that we can survive. But what we don't realize is that we are forgetting about our assets. We're forgetting to focus on the thousand things that go right every day. Like we don't give the weight and credence to the good things, the way that we do the negativity. Absolutely. Yeah. And so, and so in recovery, you know, I fast forward, I, you probably want to know how I got sober, right? Yeah, definitely. I, I want to know, like what I, <laughs> I love to, to know and get to is that there's this moment I think we all experience when we're in suffering, in some kind of suffering. It just, have, just doesn't have to be addiction, but we make this transition. We Something shifts within us. And I, and I love to, to understand that, like where was that shift? And it may not be, be like a huge moment, but it's, it's like, I guess the scales start to turn the other way and we kind of push them the other way or something happens that pushes them into, into living the life that we, that is congruent with us or moving in that direction. Yeah. I had a couple of events. I was getting to the point in my life, like I got sober when I was 25 and up until that point, you know, I was doing the best that I could, but I was failing miserably. I did not, I could not, I thought love was going to save me. I thought Prince Charming was going to ride up and rescue me with his big bank account. Um, that, that did not happen. Apparently Prince Charming is not attracted to a drunken mess, but <laughs> right. whatever. Right. <laughs> Weird. I know. Um, but, but what was happening to me was that I was always super ambitious. I've, I've had a job since I was 14 years, uh, 12 years old. I was babysitting. I was doing, anyway, I had this thing about money. And, and so by the time I reached 25, I was in an outside sales position. I had a cell phone, which was a big deal back in the day. Right, <laughs> Nobody yeah. had cell phones. They certainly weren't smart. They came with a battery pack that was 10 pounds or 20. It was ridiculous. Do you remember those? <laughs> yes, I remember those. It was like, wow, this but, is a phone that's in a car and it has a huge battery and you <laughs> carried in a suitcase. It's amazing. <laughs> yeah. It's amazing. I was, I was pretty badass at the time. I, you know, I was 25 and had a cell phone. It was yeah. amazing, but I was failing in my job because, and I was super ambitious. I had a super nice apartment and I finally 
had this boyfriend that I thought was my ideal. He was more like a hostage, but I was losing it all because of my drinking. And I kept trying to do these Tony Robbins or Harvey McKay or all these like sales training programs where you do like goal setting workshops. Right. And always at the very top of the list was stop drinking and stop smoking weed. And I could not, I couldn't, I couldn't stop. And then some terrible things happened. I went out with my sister one night and we got into a, I tried to crash my car while she she was driving my car. And I, I had a really bad night. I was super drunk. The guy I was supposed to meet at the bar didn't show up. It was the best friend of a married policeman I had been dating. He was a DUI cop. That's why I never went to jail because I used to hand out the married cop's business card with my driver's license and they would let me go crazy. Um, right. It happened like that happened like four times. I get pulled over totally drunk and they would let me go. I don't know how that wow. happened. Wow. Anyway, this one night, which I would consider my bottom, my sister and I had gone out and I was really drunk and the guy didn't show up. So I was angry. And then we drove past the guy doing a field sobriety test. And apparently I lost my damn mind. And punched the windshield with my hand and broke it in a couple places. Wow. And tried to crash the car. I was grabbing the steering wheel. My sister was trying to keep us on the road. And we almost made it home. But apparently I kicked her in the face while she was driving and gave her a bloody nose. And she somehow managed to pull the car over. And she ran to a neighbor's house of childhood. Oh, we were like three blocks from home. Um, the neighbors came out and and the cops were called. And I don't know what happened. And I don't remember most of this. I remember seeing a girl and her, the neighbor, and she was saying, it's not worth it. And I don't know what happened, but I, I woke up the next morning and I, my hand was swollen. The guy who wasn't at the bar was next to me and I didn't know how he got there, but I had that sick, sickening, wow. sinking feeling that something terrible had happened the night before. And I had to go to my sister's house and hear the whole story secondhand. And she was not happy. You know, it was, it was, it was terrible. And she started going to Al-Anon and I was, get this, I was shocked and offended that she was going because of me. (laughs) That's how (laughs) I got out of touch with Rhea. I was like, for me? Don't confront me with what's the obvious. (laughs) Yeah. I was like, what are you talking about? I mean, I was But it's just more pain, right? It's more like. Yeah. I mean, I just didn't see a way out. You know, I, I was so self-centered, but incapable of self-examination. I had, I had no like process yet of, you know, looking at my part. Right. Right, And, and through, so it took me two years. That's when I started to question my drinking and it it took me two years of questioning my drinking before I was able to surrender to the solution. Right. You know, and it came in the, back then there really wasn't a whole lot available. I didn't even know about treatment and rehab. I didn't know about any of that. I knew about AA Mm -hmm. and, but the threshold for AA was it's a high barrier to entry. It's admitting that you're an alcoholic and that's a, that's a big pill to swallow. Yeah. But I was uh, so beaten down and I had tried everything. I lived in the self-help section at Barnes and Noble for those two years, trying to, you know, seven minute abs or seven spiritual laws or, you know what I mean? Trying everything to fix this without fixing it. Yeah. Without confronting it. it, You know, I think it's like, (laughs) it's like, you know, I'm going to fix all these things so I don't have to actually confront it, but you just, it doesn't work that way. I didn't. Yeah. It didn't for me. I shot all my ankles. I did the best I could with my 
poisoned mind. It's so funny. It's like our brains are the things that run our entire lives. Yet I was poisoning it with drugs and alcohol. So how could I possibly make any good decisions? I mean, there's a reason drugs are illegal. Yeah. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? There's a reason. They're not good for you. I mean, alcohol is terrible for your brain. So how could I make, it's like trying to run a marathon with a broken leg. It's like, how could I possibly make good decisions for myself with this brain that was addicted and and uh, infused with alcohol. So how did you, <laughs> how did you start to switch it? How did you so, start to switch this brain? It's like, you know, that's what really, uh, you know, fascinates me. It's like how, how we do that as humans beings, we make some switch. Yeah, I had, so in my sales job, I had two friends that were sober. Two of my customers were sober, Mitch and Randy, and I will be forever grateful to Mitch and Randy because as I was sharing these, um, what I called episodes with them, you know, I would tell them stories about like, I had these alter egos when I drank, when I, when I, I was suppressing all my feelings. And when I drank, they would just all explode, yep. right? And I had these alter egos. It was badass Betsy or wimpy Wendy because I was either fighting or crying when I got drunk. And and I was like, I just couldn't figure it out. Like, what was wrong with me? All these other people are drinking and they don't act this way. Right. And Mitch and Randy were so sweet. They like very gently started sharing their stories with me about how they got sober and how alcohol was a problem for them. That once they started drinking, they couldn't predict who would they be who they would become. Right. And, you know, the definition of insanity, doing the same thing over and over again. And they started breaking off little chunks of wisdom and sharing their experience, strength and hope. And they were like, there is a solution. You know, why don't you just come check it out? You know, come to a meeting, come and check it out. And I was so desperate to be different that I I went and I, I wanted desperately to stop drinking and using. And by this point, I had lost the boyfriend and I was losing my job. I wasn't making any money and I lost all my friends and I, I really didn't have, I mean, I, I was contemplating death and I still had to think about it. Right. You know what I mean? I was like, well, I could die. It's like, I stood at the abyss and it was like, I still needed to think about it, but I was just so sick and tired of being sick and tired. And Mitch and Randy were like, just come check this out. And they gave me a little bit of hope. And that's when I, that's when I started going to meetings and I felt at home instantly. And that's when everything changed. They told me all you had to change was everything. And I was like, yeah, sign me up. I don't want anything of what I have. Right. And it sounds like they made it safe enough for you to just start to look a little bit inward. Like they, by yeah. sharing their story, it enabled you to kind of turn your eyes to yourself with a little bit of compassion. Yeah, they were shameless. Like they didn't have any shame. They were like, oh my God, I did this and I did that. And I was like, what? what? Yeah. What? Wait, what? <laughs> you did what? How do you, what's going on there? Yeah. Yeah. But it was like um, their vulnerability allowed and transparency allowed me to be honest. Right. And, you know, the how of recovery is honesty, open-mindedness and willingness. And there was, it wasn't a lack of willingness. I just didn't know what to do. Right. And so they were like, just come to the meetings and we'll show you what to do. We'll tell you what to do and we'll help you. And they were, they were really good. They were like, as soon as we got to the meetings, it was like, uh, the women work with the women. And I was terrified because I did not have great relationships with women. I saw women as competition, not right. I was never able to connect with women. Yeah. But I was so desperate to be sober that I was willing to work with the women and I found a sponsor and got busy and 
started it's doing been the almost work. 27 years yeah wow they say wow. you can move mountains but you, you better bring a shovel you know and <laughs> and that's what i did i, st- I started shoveling <laughs> Yeah. And I, I think that's such an important point because it's like this, this does move slow. It doesn't just shift, but there's that moment. Maybe you, you've, you found those people, they came into your life, they shared their story. They gave you just the, just what you needed in that moment to begin to pick up the shovel and start moving that mountain piece by piece. It wasn't that I didn't want to quit drinking. Yeah. I desperately wanted to quit. I desperately wanted to stop. I wanted to. And I just couldn't. Yeah. And so I was ready. I was really ready. I wanted to stop. Yeah. I want. I wanted to stop so bad, but you know, um, you know, and, and then I kept hearing about the, you know, in the twelve steps, they, you know, I saw people doing steps one, two, and three and relapsing, and I was terrified. I was like, hell no, that is not going to be my story. So I found a woman, and I asked her, <laughs> you know, I asked her to be my sponsor. Because number one, she remembered my name the second time she met me. That never happens. People do right. not remember. Arlena is a difficult name to remember. She remembered my name the second time she met me. And um, I asked her if she would be willing to listen to my inventory because I was terrified mm-hmm. I was going to relapse. And she said that she would be honored, which was wow. amazing. Wow. And she said, but we're going to start with step one. And so that's what oh, we did. Boy. And she said, just apply the same intensity that you use towards getting your drugs and alcohol. I want you to apply that same intensity to the steps and you'll be fine. And so we met every right, week. Right. She was like, You're, I'm going to give you some, it, the steps are largely a writing assignment, a series of writing assignments. And so she'd give me some homework. I would do it. We would meet and I would share. I, I would mostly listen because she had a lot to share. And I was like, aren't you supposed to listen to me? But no, apparently (laughs) the fourth step is when I got to talk, you know, (laughs) she was, you know, of course we would discuss things, but the fourth step is when it was the first, it was that self-examination process. Yeah. And that's, that can be re I was going to say that can be, that can be really hard when we start to really have to look at ourselves and all the good parts and also all the not so good parts. It can be, it can be challenging. Um, one question I have is, as you start to do this change, can you talk a little bit about some of the biggest challenges of, of making this shift and walking through this process to where you are today? Well, I think, you know, the I'm, I'm very 12-step oriented and, you know, the, the four-step was really the first time I was ever able to to sort of sort through all my baggage, shall we say. And I think what's Mm -hmm. not often talked about during like the fourth step is that it's a like you get to talk about all your resentments. It's like a free bitch session. Like you get to list out all the people who did you wrong and all the reasons why and how they victimized you. Right. You get to really you and someone's going to listen to all of it. Right. Yeah. You get to unload all of that. And so and then you get to start to see like how how you're affected in relationships. And what I learned about my, I began to see patterns of behavior that I was taking inappropriate responsibility for others and inappropriate responsibility for myself. Meaning 
Um, for instance, when I was 14 years old, my mother, my sister had mental illness. She was depressed and we didn't know that that's what it was back in the day. Cause nobody talked about it and she was suicidal. And my mother came to me and said, we have to save your sister. And so I thought it was my responsibility to save my sister at 14 years old. And I was not equipped. And so I tried yeah. to control her and she wouldn't act right. But right, I was yeah. taking inappropriate responsibility for her and it was making me crazy. Yeah. Right. It made me feel like a bad person. I felt like I can't make my mom love me. Like I felt like my mom hated me. And it was like, oh, here's an opportunity f to make my mom love me by healing my sister, saving her. And I couldn't right. do it. Yeah. And so I was yeah. just failing all over the place and it just made me feel worse. But when I did the inventory, I realized, oh, I was not taking responsibility for myself. Like I wasn't doing any of my own self-care. I thought right. that if yeah. I fixed something outside myself, then I would be okay. Right. But yeah. that's, that was one of the biggest things about, about recovery is I learned where to take responsibility for myself and what to let go of. And the letting go of what's not mine gave me the strength to bear the weight of what was. Does that make sense? Yeah. And it totally makes sense. And, and, and I think an important point too, is that doing this with other people is so important. Having people reflect back Critical. to you. Even whether it's in 12-step or if, if 12-step is not your thing, a therapist or other support group, whatever it is, is having those people reflecting that back to you so that you can, you know, we can look at it honestly and see it and have compassion for ourselves. They can have some compassion for us. That's where we begin to change it. You know, having that community, whatever that looks like. A community is huge. I would not, there is no doing this alone, yeah, right? Absolutely. Because it's like our minds are compromised. And so we need an outside objective, compassionate third party uh, perspective on what's going on. Emotion distorts our perspective and we can't see things clearly. That's why we need an outside perspective because they're unemotional and unattached about our situation, right? And they can give us other ideas and they can see things more clearly. And somebody who is compassionate can give you, can deliver, compassion right, implies right. A, like an, a level of understanding and, you know, that, you know, I can't, if somebody's talking down to me, I just can't hear it. I just can't. Yeah. If I feel like yeah, I'm being no, judged and someone's trying to, I, I just can't hear it. And you're right. There's, there's many ways to recovery. 12 steps is not the only way. That's just how it happened in my life. But now there's lots of other options. But I think the, I think the key element in the process that I went through is I had a process to sort of unpack my baggage, to sort it out, recognize um, how I was showing up in relationship, like where I was out of balance with my instincts, right? Like there's this term character defects that I don't really like, but all that means is that like I had an instinct, I did the best that I could, but I was out of balance, right? Like the seeking for right. pleasure be in relief became my sole obsession. There was no sort of like critical and like evaluation of my behavior and what could I have done better. It was either I, I need to do what I have yeah. to do to feel relief or I hate myself. There really was no like middle ground. I was also going to comment on that shame piece too, is a lot of times that, that keeps us from reaching out to get that support. And it's like, sometimes we, I think we have to get in enough pain just to push through that shame and say, I just got to get help. 
Yeah. I mean, that is sort of the purpose of pain, right? It's supposed, it's meant to be sort of a guide in, in a way. Our feelings are our guides. And when you're numbing out and checking out and distracting and, and suppressing, it's like, it's hard to be able to listen to your internal GPS, so to speak. So, and yeah. And, and, um, I know that there's some good trauma informed therapists and people like that who, um, can help unpack the baggage and, help you like, okay, what is yours? Where can you take responsibility? Where are you out of balance with compassion? It's like, what are we doing wrong? You know, once we can identify what we're doing wrong, we can fix it. Yeah. So that's all. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit about how you help people now and and taking all of this knowledge, all of this hard won (laughs) experience, uh, pain, (laughs) all of that. And how do you uh, move that forward? Or give it forward. So, yeah. So I have been sponsoring women through 12 step for, you know, 26, almost 27 years now. Like I started right from the very beginning. I learned that service was a great way to rebuild self-esteem and a service can be done in a variety of ways. It doesn't have to be 12 step. It can be done in a bunch of ways. But what I do now is um, I have a self-esteem class and it's called reInvent. And it's a way to end self-sabotage. It's a way to learn how to practice good self, healthy self-care. And what I'm really obsessed with is like the science behind uh, behavior change, right? We have like this default mode network and where you have this operating system that's dysfunctional. And so my work is largely about acknowledging and processing negative pain to resolution it's really validating negative feelings, right? And because once those feelings are validated, then we can move to solution. And in my mind, the solution, um, it, the mechanics about it is really rewiring your brain for, um, to get to a sort of higher default mode network, right? We start, um, uncovering, um, limiting beliefs and reframing those on, on the subconscious level. It's really about, uh, reprogramming the subconscious mind, right? That that place that we are so detached from that we need to support. And, and it's largely like visualization, writing exercises, thinking about what you do want, not about what you don't want. We're all very clear about what the pain and the problems are. And so the idea is to move off of the problem and start focusing on uh, solutions. You know, validate the pain and negativity, move to solution. We need a clear vision and we need to feel the feelings as if it's already happened. And, and so like self-care is key. And at first, you know, these self-care practices like prayer, meditation, um, I do a writing exercise called the perfect day exercise. What does your perfect day actually look like in the class? We, um, you know, write a letter to the little girl inside us, you know, we do this whole forgiveness process, right? There is this need that we are to be forgiven, right? It's almost like a, a, a permission slip right? It's like your little inner child was never meant to carry the burdens that you're carrying and they're still in there and they need us to step up and let go of the things that we're not responsible for and just focus on the things that we are responsible for, which is our own healing and our thoughts and our feelings. Like we can absolutely, you know, rewire our brain to start focusing on more positive things so that we make better decisions, take better actions and have better outcomes. It's all cause and effect, right? Yeah. And I love that you're 
baseness around the current research and science that we know about how the brain works. I mean, we're learning so much. And what's really hopeful is really beginning to see how plastic the brain is and that these yeah. things actually do change the brain. These kind, This kind of thinking, doing these things actually will shift it. It takes time, but it it's completely possible. And here's here's the good news. I experienced when I when I first got sober, I was growing in leaps and bounds. Like my life changed quickly. Like I, I didn't have a lot of right. I was 25. I didn't have a lot of baggage, right? I didn't have kids. I didn't have a husband. So for me, it happened very quickly. But I was lucky in the sense that I learned to feed my brain good things all the time. I was listening to Marianne Williamson on cassette tape. <laughs> Right, like right. constantly over. <laughs> but I was also, I probably read 50 books my first year of sobriety. I was just so desperate. I, I found Deepak Chopra and Wayne Dyer, Marianne Williamson. And, you know, there's so many authors out there, you know, um, and, and now there's so many resources. I, there's people struggle with some very common things early in sobriety, sleep, boredom, um, there are solutions to yep. all that. Like the boredom piece is kind of important to acknowledge because your brain is actually, your dopamine reward system is all screwed up. So in the beginning, we experience boredom sometimes because we're sort of addicted to that negativity and, and drama and all that stuff. And yeah, so we need yeah. to, we need to know what to do instead. And I have a, a whole list of things to, of what you can do instead, right? Community is a great, a great way. Uh, anyway, I have a exercise, like the fitness community is a great place. I mean, there's so many communities of people having fun that don't involve alcohol or drugs. And then the sleep is important too. It takes a little time for your brain to rewire and have healthy sleep. And I am obsessed with this guy named Michael Seeley. He has free, I think it's like hip, self-hypnosis uh, and he has sleep meditations. And so uh, you just fall asleep listening to it. They're like eight hours long or something. And so if you wake up in the middle of the night, right. it's like, oh, you're still listening to this very soothing voice with these positive messages, put you right back to sleep. So there are ways to handle the sleep. Yeah. There's ways to handle the boredom. Um, sex. I don't know if we can talk about sex a little bit. That is weird. When right, you first yeah. experience that in recovery, and there's all kinds of things that you can do around getting comfortable with that. I mean, there's some really, you know, there's all kinds of solutions now. Everything is at your fingertips. Yeah. And I think we could talk about this for, I mean, all of these things could have their own podcast episode yeah. and and we can get into it, but we're starting to to run on our time here. So we're out of time. Um, yeah. But what, what I'd love to, love to ask guests when they come on the edge of their mind is if, if anybody's out there and they're struggling, what's the one thing you want to tell them? What would, you, what would be the one thing, if you could only tell them one thing, what would it be? Learn some self-care practices and give yourself some compassion. Love it. I think yeah. that's simple and to the point. Get help. <laughs> simple and to the point. Yeah. That's awesome. So if anybody wants to find out more about you, how can they find you? I think the best place is soberlifeschool.com. That's the best place to find me. I'm very um, accessible. Um, I do have a podcast called the ODAT Chat Podcast. It's O-D-A-A-T chat.com. Mm -hmm. There's lots of information there, but Sober Life School is the best place to find me. 
the best place to get a hold of you. Awesome. That is yeah. so great. Thank you so much for coming on to the Addicted Mind and just sharing your story, your wisdom, and all of your hope. <laughs> there's so much hope. Yes, there's so much hope. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. And I can't wait to come on to your podcast too. So that's going to be awesome. I cannot wait. I'm so excited. All right. Take care. <laughs> Have a great day. All right. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Addicted Mind podcast. All the show notes will be at theaddictedmind.com forward slash 125. There you can find all of Arlena Allen's contact information. All right, everyone. Thank you for listening to the Addicted Mind podcast. If you would like to find out more about Arlena Allen, you can just go to the show notes at theaddictedmind.com forward slash 125. All the links will be there. And if you are enjoying the Addicted Mind podcast, please rate and review us in iTunes or share the podcast with a friend. And don't forget, think about joining our Facebook group. Just go to Facebook and type in the Addicted Mind podcast, click join and continue the conversation online there. All right, everyone, have a wonderful day and I will talk to you on the next episode. It's easy to blame ourselves for our struggles with alcohol. We see people around us being able to control their drinking without any consequences, yet no matter what we try, we can't seem to figure it out for ourselves. My name is Jillian Teets, and I am the host of the Sober Powered Podcast, where I use my biochemistry background to explain the latest research in addiction and help you understand both why you drink the way you do and how to develop the skills and mindset you need to find freedom from alcohol. I discuss topics like why we think about our drinking 24-7, why we have no off switch, and why we crave alcohol. If you're struggling with your drinking or you know someone who is, then I hope that you will check out the Sober Powered Podcast. New episodes every Friday. See you there.